On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. Menners, and joining me today, I have... Lisa Stalaker, who has literally been everywhere all summer covering the women's Big Bash, the men's Big Bash, the women's tests, the men's tests. You've had a huge summer, Lisa. How are you going? Uh, I am exhausted, but I'm so glad that I'm here with you, Menace. Yeah, you just can't get enough about talking cricket, can you? Well, that and you also do serve a good coffee. Excellent. And the other panellist today is Paul, the summer game, Dennett, who joined us two weeks ago, cricket analyst. How are you, Paul? I'm good, Manners. I'm very excited um, about the upcoming South Africa series. Can't believe it's 24 years since Australia first toured South Africa since readmission, 1994. Um, it was a wonderful time watching, listening to Mike Hazeman's voice for the first time, watching the cricket late at night. It's going to be great to do it all again. Yeah, I was reminiscing last show about that tour. I remember Warney giving Andrew Hudson a big send-off. Um, and getting fined, and it was Alan Border's last test on that tour. He yep. batted a, a slow forty to battle Australia to a draw, which sort of, I guess, sort of summed up elements of his career. I think he concluded it with a maiden against Jonty Rhodes. Good way to finish your test career. I'm a little bit worried about how my sleep is going to go over the next month. I don't know if you two have thought about this, but I was crunching some numbers this morning. Stats guy, Paul, will be on this. So if I get to bed about 3 a.m. every morning at the end of the cricket, I have to get up around 6 to get my kids to school. That leaves about three hours sleep. So I'm not sure how the next month is going to go generally for me. Highlights packages, I reckon, the next day. Well, I was sort of thinking more day sleeps. I get the kids to school and then I go back to bed. I'll be the, the guy that sort of rocks up in the dressing gown, drops the sun off at school and then straight back to bed. Well, you should do what I do. Now, I've gone into the IQ and I've recorded all sessions. For, our entire IQ now in Foxtels has got the South Africa cricket. So um, you can watch it fast forwarding between the balls, which is my great talent. That um, I can show you how to do it so you can... <laughs> You can watch a six-hour day in about an hour and a half and see the whole thing. <laughs> so you're suggesting I, <laughs> I re- like that idea. record the whole thing, just get up normal time, whiz through the day in a couple of hours, and yeah. bang. The only, the only problem is that you remember none of it. Um, that's, the, that's the only downside. You hear none of the commentary. And all that's, the probably, balls. that's probably a good thing, hey? Yeah. And we've got a huge podcast today. Uh, I was lucky enough to speak to the Australian wicketkeeper, Tim Payne. So we're going to uh, air that interview. We're going to preview the South African series. We've got all the week's cricket headlines. And I'm going to ask these panellists what their summer highlight was. But look, let's get straight into it. To preview the series, I was lucky enough to speak to Tim Payne uh, earlier on about how the preparations are going for the Australian side in Durban. So let's head straight to Durban and the Australian Test wicketkeeper, Tim Payne. All right, joining me now from Durban in South Africa is Australia's Test wicketkeeper, Tim Payne. Tim, the spectators in Australia are getting very excited about the upcoming series. How about you and the team? How are you feeling? 
Yeah, exactly the same. Very excited. Obviously, it's not. Um, you know, the Ashes was a was a huge series um, as a player. To be involved in it, a home Ashes was massive. But to be um, over here in South Africa's backyard, and um, obviously they're you know one of the best teams in the world. So it's going to be a huge challenge. But the boys are uh, right up for it, and, and really exciting. Yeah, and what's the message been from Steve Smith and Darren Lehman to the group going into this series? Oh, no different to, to any other, to be honest. I mean, it's all still about us, you know, playing your own game and um, trying to play to our strengths. So look, we know that they've got you know, a really uh, powerful uh, side. Their attack's really quick um, and their batters, you know, they've got A.B. De Villiers, uh, Faf Duplicy, some some Hashem Amar, world-class players. I think it's sticking to you to what you do best and, you know, to try and be as positive as possible. I think that's the, the only thing you can do when you come up against good teams is, is to back yourself and, um, and to take them on. So we certainly won't be taking a backward step. Good to hear. How are the preparations been going over there in the lead-up to the Durban test? Yeah, it's been great. We had a, uh, a really good three-day hit out against South Africa A last week, which is good to get over here in, in these conditions and... You know, everyone, um, you know, pretty much, I think, played the, the, a pretty similar team that will probably play in the first test. So everyone got a good bat, good bowl. Um, we won the game as well, which is good to start the tour with a uh, with a win and, and get that momentum going. So, yeah, it was, it's been good. We're now in Durban. The nets here we've, we've used the last couple of days have been terrific. So um, the facilities and, and conditions that so far from what we've seen are pretty similar to Australia. But um, we also saw the test series over here that they played against India. The wickets were a bit indifferent. So... Um, we're preparing for um, for all conditions at the moment and, and see what we get. Yeah, so what does the Durban pitch look like two days out from the match? Uh, yeah, I had a bit of a look at it yesterday. It looks pretty good, um, as you'd expect, a few days out. It's got some grass on it and a tinge of green, but um, I'm sure in the next couple of days with some sun it will flatten out. And Yeah, to me, I'm not the, not the best reader of a wicket, but it looks like it'll be um, pretty good. And, you know, they talk about the tide having an effect on the way the pitch is played. Have you talked about yeah. that amongst the group? And do you think there's anything to that? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Again, I haven't played here, but uh, no, Brad hadn't actually brought it up in the team meeting um, that he's played here a few times. Um, and the locals say that, that that is actually a factor. So if you get the right conditions, apparently when the tide comes in, somehow that changes the conditions. I'm not too sure if I'm buying into it, but um, we'll see what happens. I'm sure it's just a bit of good ball shining and a bit of a juicy pitch. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, that's for sure. I certainly, I know there's a few grounds around the world where, where people say that, that that is the case, but I'm not sure how a tide that's, you know, five 600 metres away from the ground is going to affect the pitch, but... We'll wait and see. I could be wrong. Yeah, we will see. Maybe it'll it'll come into effect if you guys are bowling, but hopefully not batting. Yeah, hopefully. That'd be nice. That'd be ideal if we can control that. Now, they're, they're talking about these two huge fast bowling units going up against each other. The average yep. speed is going to be right up there for this series. Um, how are our quicks looking yep. in the nets, and are they sort of preparing you for the, the challenging of face of the South African attack? Yeah, well, I think, again, that's probably one of the advantages that, that both sides has is that, is that we face, you know, that sort of pace on a, on a daily basis when we're, when we're training against our own bowling attacks. So um, we certainly know, you know, what to expect. Uh, the bowlers have certainly been probably giving us a bit more of a working over with the short ball because, you know, we think that both sides are going to probably bowl quite a lot of it. It's going to be quite an aggressive test series, so... Um, yeah, look, it's just another challenge, and, and as I said, I'm sure you know it's a 
two world-class batting lineups who get to face that sort of pace all the time. So um, there's going to be guys that are certainly going to get tested at certain times, and you know that's the idea of a test match is, is that you're tested. So it's you know you get through the the tough periods, and you know the more overs you make these big fast bowlers bowl. Uh, hopefully, the slower they get. So that's the plan. Um, which of our Aussie fast bowlers do you stand the furthest back for? Um, they're all very similar, to be honest. Um, they all get about the same sort of carry. I think, yeah, there's not a huge difference. I think Josh Hazelwood, because of his height, occasionally you can go a little bit further back if you want to. But, uh, again, you don't want to go too far back and, and take the slips out of the game. So we're constantly um, talking in the slips myself and Steve Smith and Sean Marsh about trying to actually get the opposite. We're trying to get as close as we feel comfortable um, rather than, than get too far back. And whilst it can look great on, on television, if I'm catching the ball standing a long way back, I can sometimes take the slips too deep and Nick's don't carry. So we're always trying to, to push ourselves to get up a bit closer if we possibly can. But um, certainly all three of them, have, I've got me standing a lot further back than, than I'm used to. And, you know, you've had a big summer being recalled to the side. I guess you had a bit of time sort of between the ashes and now to reflect on, on the summer and being the Australian wicketkeeper. How, how are you feeling about it all? Uh, yeah, obviously delighted. I'm, I'm wrapped to be in the position um, that I am. I am uh, feel you know, I'm extremely grateful for the position I'm in. And, um, you know, just this time around, I, I speak to, spoke to Pat Howard yesterday about it. Actually, I just feel... The age I am now and the experience I've gotten and, and having played some tests and one-day cricket sort of eight or nine years ago, I've, you know, this time around, really enjoyed it uh, a lot more and, and tried to, to, I suppose, let it soak in a lot more. Whereas I think, you know, when I was 24, 25, I was, I was in a bit of a rush and um, didn't really give myself the chance to, to enjoy it for what it is. It's, it's a pretty special thing when you're playing test cricket for your country and um, there's a lot of great things that come along with it off the field as well. So, um, you know, I'm just trying to really enjoy travelling around the world at the moment, um, playing in front of big crowds in, in big series. And, yeah, rather than have that as a burden, I'm, I'm just letting myself enjoy it as much as I possibly can. And how are your hands feeling? Yeah, they're great. Yeah, I've got, obviously had issue with my right index finger a few years ago, but um, apart from that, my hands are... Um, in really good condition at the moment for for a wicketkeeper who's played sort of first class cricket for ten or twelve years, they're they're okay. So having a, you know a bit of a sore hand occasionally is is part and parcel of what I do. You might have a sore hand with all these fast bowlers at, by the end of this series. Yeah. How much of That's a help right, is means I'm catching plenty. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully, Nick's South African Nick's. How much of a help is Brad Haddon for you? He's around the group and obviously an experienced Test wicketkeeper. Oh yeah, fantastic! And I, and again, when I was in the in the squad years ago, Brad was the number one keeper. So I've had a really good relationship with him uh, for a number of years now, and he's someone that I've, I've I've actually based a lot of my keeping technique on. Anyway, we go about our glove work in a, in a really similar way. So um, yeah, to have someone who understands what I'm doing um, and the pressures that sort of go with test wicket keeping, um, have him there all the time to to bounce ideas off and and talk about the game has been really helpful. And are you as talkative as Brad Haddon behind the stumps? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think all keepers are. I think it's part of our, our job description is to um, drive the energy of the team in the field. So that's that's with your action, obviously running around and diving around and creating energy that way. But um, at times it's, you know, it's encouraging your teammates. At times it's having a bit of a chat with the opposition. So um, you've just got to be able to, I suppose, go in and out of all those types of, of ways to, to try and energise your team and, and make sure that everyone's on the on their game. Yeah, and um, 
What's your relationship with like with Nathan Lyon? Obviously, the spinner and the wicketkeeper have to work pretty closely. How's your relationship? Yeah, uh, yeah. Look, our relationship is is good. We'll go in early most most test match days, and um, he likes to have a bowl quite early, so we go on the early bus, and um, I'll go in and catch. So just so I feel that I'm I'm sort of in rhythm with him. But the challenging thing with Nathan is obviously for an off spinner, the, the amount of spin he gets. Um, firstly, but also um, he gets a hell of a lot of bounce, which can be be a real challenge for a wicketkeeper. So, you know, I've sort of tried at training instead of just doing, you know, all drill work with Brad Haddon, I tried to do as much as I can with Nathan and um, and get used to the shape and the bounce and the spin that, that he can get. Yeah, he's coming up to 300 test wickets. Has he told any of you about that yet? Oh, he's, he's always reminding us that he's the goat, so I'm sure it'll pop up in the next few weeks when he's when he's getting really close to it. No doubt about that. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Good luck for the series. Yeah, and no, I hope you go well. No worries. Thanks very much. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp cricket podcast. That was Tim Payne over in Durban. He seems really like a great guy. That he's really comfortable as the Australian wicketkeeper now and enjoying his time in the Aussie side. I think he he even indicated when he first came into the side he was a young 24-year-old. As as you kind of see a lot of young cricketers come through the Australian setup, they want to be the stars straight away, but it takes time. Um, and unfortunately for Tim Payne, he had that um, finger injury which really did rest him for a long period of time. So even he said he's just soaking it up a bit more and he does seem really relaxed out there and he suits wearing the baggy green. He looks comfortable uh, and that's a great thing. He, he Throughout the summer, and I was one that probably questioned his selection at the start of it, but he just slotted in nicely behind the stumps and he looked like a, he'd been playing test cricket for the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I suppose not every player gets that that opportunity to have such a long gap and to come back with such a renewed and um, refreshed perspective and to realise, well, if I'm going to be here, whether I'm going to be here for a month or five years, just enjoy every single moment of it. Um, it will be interesting to see how things go down the track with Alex Carey is going to be sort of breathing down his neck. It'll be an interesting uh, kind of battle, but he's obviously got the job for the moment. Yep, he does. And uh, hopefully he'll do well in this series because I think runs at number seven will will be crucial. All right, let, let's preview this four-test series, Australia v South Africa. Throughout the series, to keep up with all the action, you can go to the Daily Telegraph online or the Australian Pete Lawler and Ben Horner over there. So I'll be speaking to them during the series. There's a lot at stake for Australia. They haven't won a series overseas since early 2016 when they beat New Zealand in New Zealand. And I would sort of argue that Australia's only significant overseas victories in the last decade, really, have come in South Africa. We haven't won in England. We haven't won in India. But we've got this tremendous undefeated record since readmission um, for South Africa. So... I think Australia go in full of confidence with that record. They're playing the first test at Durban. The report's coming out today that the pitch is going to be a bit slower than they're predicting. I wonder why they would take the pace out of the pitches considering South Africa have such a good attack as well. It's because the Australians have a good pace attack as well. So I think by taking out potentially both of the team's strengths, you're going to see now what depth have they got, whether it comes from a bowling perspective who's going to score the most amount of runs, that's going to be crucial. And and we saw over in the South Africa series against India, the, the, the pitches were a little bit too paced, a little bit indifferent. So I guess we've got to see each test as it comes, what pitch they're going to serve up. 
Yeah, it'd be disappointing if, if they do make them a bit slower because I watched the highlights of the tour game and it was on a pretty fast wicket and the fast bowlers were really getting into it. It was really entertaining stuff. It's, it's such better cricket when there's bounce and, and, and pace in the wicket. But the India series, they went a bit too far and there was a, a point at which one of the test matches almost had to be called off because it was so dangerous. So um, I think they're, they're, they're trying to dial that back a bit. And they're also saying that this time of the year, the pitches are pretty worn having been played on most of the summer. So they might inevitably be a bit slower anyway. Yeah, it's a strange one, though, because Australia have shown repeatedly how badly they do when the wickets have a bit of life in them. So you would think South Africa would try and expose that and see if they can knock over Australia for 47 again or 80 or whatever, 60, all these low scores that Australia have produced on seeming wickets. So I think it's strange if they do that and might play into Australia's hands. We saw in the Ashes how well Australia did on sort of lifeless wickets, that that suits our game more than anything. I think it's a strange one. I just want to make note that Durban, the last time we were there, was in 2009. Australia won the test and won the series there, but it was the scene of Phil Hughes scoring centuries in both innings of the game. And I do think that he will be in the hearts and minds of all Australian cricket fans throughout this test match. Um, And it may be, you know, I think our thoughts should go out to his family, obviously. I think they'll be thinking about him at this time as well. Yeah, you... I think as when you've lost someone close to you and, and you go back to certain times where that player was really important, you'll, you'll always remember. And, um, you know, South Africa was really where he was kind of born, wasn't he, as a player? And we all thought, wow, this kid's going to go far. So, yeah, I'm sure he's, he's certainly going to be in their minds. I just think as well that was such an unexpected series win for Australia. I think we just lost at home to South Africa, so we weren't expected to go there and win. We won the first test, and then, you know, to this young man score centuries in tough conditions against the South Africans. I remember it was just such a joyous test match, and yeah, sad that, uh, you know, to bring back all the memories and probably the players themselves, you know, the, the players that were close to Phil, like Smith and Warner, this could be tough for them. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, that, I, I remember that series very fondly. Um, I was a huge fan of Phil Hughes and I was, I was, I was always convinced that um, given the opportunity, he was going to be a, a 45, 50 test match average, if not, a, if not more, 100 test player. So in another way, of, if, if the world had run its different course, he'd be opening the batting in, in the test match coming up. All right. Now let's go to the South African squad for this test match. Dale Steyn is injured. Mornay Morkel has announced his retirement at the end of this series. He's married to Australian Rods Kelly, so I think we'll see him perhaps in the Big Bash, perhaps living in Australia afterwards. So I don't think this will be the last we see of him locally. But It's a pity, though, for, for international cricket, though, that this is happening so often with, with cricketers around the world that they're retiring before the end of their international career for very good reasons. I'd do it as well if I was them. But, you know, there's talk he might get a coal pack contract in, in England and, and, and make the most of that before Brexit um, sort of closes that loophole. But if... Australia and India and England really do value test cricket. They need to find a way to put some extra money into the system to allow players like this to keep on to prolonging their international careers. He's a, he's a case that he's played over 80 tests. So I think he's not a bad one. You fast bowler, tough on your body. It's the players that are leaving much earlier that's the worry for me. Well, I mean, I think we've got to keep in mind the fact that you know, whilst India, England and Australia 
really do see test cricket as the ultimate and can afford to pay their players the right amount. Unfortunately, other national bodies don't have the funds there to do so. And um, I'm sure the RAND and the exchange rate there certainly does not help them as well. So they're dealing with other things, but it's going to be a great time for for Mornay and his family. Um, Hopefully for them, they get a a wonderful send-off and he plays really well. And, you know, he did really well against India as well. So fingers crossed he can finish on a high. Absolutely. I mean, if I was in his situation, I probably would have left three years ago and, and, and done this. So. Yeah, you'd, have, you'd, you'd have taken the T20 cash 10 no, years yeah, ago. So, so I totally understand what he's doing. I'd do it for sure, but I'm saying that it'd be great if um, the ICC could find a way to support these smaller nations. Do we know if Roz Kelly has a favourite Big Bash franchise? Because perhaps they yeah, could well, start courting tell- Morkel. Yeah, I've been telling her the Sydney Sixers because obviously magenta is the right colour for her in supporters' outfit. So, uh, yeah, and I certainly, when Ros Kelly does come out here for Big Bash, she does um, settle herself in Sydney. So maybe one of the Sydney teams. Excellent. Now, with the South African team for Durban, some of the debate is around fitness. If Quinton de Kock is fit, he'll probably bat at six, which means they'll pick five bowlers which would be the spinner Maharaj, then the four quicks, Morkel, Rabada, Philander, and Lungi Nagidi. They might throw an all-rounder in there, uh, Mulder or De Bruyne, who would lengthen their batting lineup. But looks like a pretty awesome pace attack. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, um, they're, they're talking about this as being the two best pace attacks in the world, and I'm sure that's right. Uh, it does lengthen their tail. That's what they did when they went against India. They had... Philander batting at seven, and he's a capable batsman, but you'd think that seven's probably one spot too high. But as good as their pace attack is, I still think Australia's is probably a little bit better. Um, I think that Philander is the most underrated bowler in the world. I continually think that he's absolutely magnificent and doesn't get quite the credit that, that he's due. But although Rabada, I think, is, being, is an excellent bowler, he's just not quite living up to the... You know, I thought he was going to be an all-time great a few years ago. I'm not so sure that that's going to be the case. Ngidi looks promising, but he's um, it's a little bit too early to say. So if I had to choose between the attacks, I'd still probably pick the Australian. Yeah, it's much of a muchness for me. Uh, I think... Um... I think you've got to take in the factor that Dale Stain is still injured. Uh, Mornay Morkel's calling it a day. It's an older attack in that sense. And, and we kind of saw something very similar in the Ashes. Um, the English fast bowlers, they were kind of coming to the end of their their test career, whereas our fast bowlers, touch wood, stay injury-free. Quick touch wood, they're all done. And they're peaking perfectly. So that's the difference, I think. Our guys are ready to go, yeah. and they're bull at a gate at the moment. The, it's the first time in a while that there has been little or no speculation about the Australian eleven. Uh, the, the top six has settled, certainly going into the first test. Obviously, Cameron Bancroft comes into the series with a cloud circling over him now, having poor form at the back end of the Ashes series. It's been pointed out that he has has some technical deficiencies. There's a bit of a gap between his bat and pad that the English exposed by the end of the series. I guess, Lisa, what's your level of confidence with Bancroft going into this? It's quite interesting. You put Bancroft and Hanscom together, and I think Bancroft has more technical deficiencies than um, Hanscom. I think Hanscom does things differently, but we've seen how effective that can be for our captain. Uh, When he gets it right, he's unbeatable. Uh, Hanscom's still trying to find that way, whereas Bancroft, I think there certainly is a cloud over him and there will be a lot of questions asked if the first test he doesn't produce the goods. 
Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. Most players don't end up succeeding at the top level. His record, he's only 25, and that's the thing that's that's good about him, that his record at this stage of average in the high 30s and strike rate in the low 40s, which means he's not really been dominating first-class cricket as you would expect someone who's going to come in and average into the high 40s in test cricket would. But I think if you looked at Steve Waugh's record or someone's record at the same age, they wouldn't have had anything special either. So hopefully they do give him a chance. Um, I'm not convinced that he is the right one, but now they've they've seen a lot in him, they've picked him. It'd be disappointing if they dropped him um, after one or two more failures. Yeah, I floated the idea that perhaps Matt Renshaw will be flown over if Bancroft strugg- struggles because I don't think it's the right balance moving Kawaja up to open Smith to three and then you bring Hanscom in. That just throws the whole batting order out. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't mind seeing Usman Kawaja up the top. I, I like him as an opener. I think he's got the skill set to do it and has done it. Whether he can do it consistently at, in that position at test level, that we may never know. But if He did it that Adelaide day-night test against South Africa two years ago when Warner went off and couldn't open the batting and made 100. That's right. So I, I think um, I think worse comes to, to worse if they had to. Usman could go up, and it, it may be for one test. It may, you know, they may give Bancroft a number of test matches, and I hope they do to to get himself. Settled. You think he'd get at least two? You would think, and you'd like to think if he gets to potentially three, and if it really isn't going well, then obviously the you know the last one they'll change it up. But yeah, well, you'll be happy if Renshaw gets over because I'm you're going flying, with him. You're yeah, flying yeah. with him. Yeah, I can actually fit in his kit bag. So uh, now the other thing I want to make note of that Mitchell Stark at the back end of the Ashes had a bruised heel and wasn't at 100 percent fitness. As a matter of fact. The Sydney test, he sort of came in and out of his best form. So he's now recovered from that. I think Stark will be fired up to deliver some thunderbolts in this series. Yeah, I was going to say we saw that in the the practice match, didn't we? Um, Because he got a sniff that... uh, what was the player who... Klassen or Mulder, one of them. Mulder, got, I think yeah, it was Mulder. Mulder yeah. yeah, got a sniff that he was potentially playing or had been He was announced, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he just uh, reminded him kindly of what he might be uh, facing in the test matches. And he looked good, he looked quick. But you also said um, that the pitch was fast as well. So yeah. um, he looks good. He's had enough break, so time for him to Because he just loose. couldn't maintain the pace through his spells during the Ashes. He couldn't, like we've seen in... the two years previous where he has these awesome spells. They weren't quite there in the ashes, so it'd be good to see him back. All right, now it's prediction time. Lisa, what do you think this series result will be and why? I think it will be two one and I'm gonna go for two, an two. I'm gonna go for an Australian victory. I think our fast bowlers will bowl well in those conditions, very similar to Australia. They've got their tails up um, after the Ashes. They've won their first practice match. There's a good feeling amongst the group. Uh, We just need to find some runs at the top of the order and not just rely on a couple of guys. What about you, Paul? I think I've been saying 4-0 to Australia. I'm starting to edge towards 3-1, but I'll stick with 4-0. I should say I tipped England to win the Ashes 3-2, so don't listen to my predictions at all. Um, so <laughs> good. No one, no one, turn off this podcast right now. <laughs> Ignore what Paul said. Uh, look on paper, South Africa and Australia very evenly matched, but I was a little bit concerned with what I saw in England in, in the winter. That South Africa were doing things I hadn't seen in a South African side before, dropping catches. The heads were dropping from time to time. Then they haven't been all that impressive against India. They won the Test series two one. They could have lost that two one. Then they got absolutely belted in the white ball cricket. And I just think that 
maybe their cricket's slightly heading downwards, whereas I think Australia's is is definitely heading upwards. And Ricky Ponting, although it was with the T20, was talking about how amazed he was with the the professionalism and the the, the slickness in the setup of the training. And I think that's what Australia is—a very very professional, slick outfit. And I just yeah, I, intuition four nil. Well, that's a big call. You don't sort of think that it'll be closer than that. I mean, Australia's batting, you know, there's there's question marks over our middle order, our top order. You know, South Africa have a very strong batting lineup. I mean, you don't give them more of a chance? Oh, I'm sure in a month's time I'll be asking you to delete this segment from the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's... Well, it'll be too late then. Um, What's your prediction? Well, my prediction. Now, uh, my weekly column, I put out my prediction. If you want to read my column, it's on every... News Corp website in the country, Daily Telegraph, Courier Mail, Herald Sun, and I am predicting Australia to win 2-1. I wouldn't say I'm really confident in this one because I think it'll be a tight series and, you know, for the end of the series, South Africa win 2-1, I think it'll be still a tight series. I don't think either side is going to run away with it Paul style (laughs) 4-0. But I do have a few elements where I think Australia will just have the edge. Now, Paul, you brought brought up before Philander perhaps batting at seven and that being a spot too high. I think it is too high. So you look at Australia's lineup with Payne at seven and then Stark and Cummins at eight and nine. Stark and Cummins, both very good players. Stark, nine, nine test half centuries already in his short career. So uh, Cummins has shown potentially scored 50 in the tour game. So I think tail order runs can be decisive in a close series. We saw in the first test of the Ashes, Australia got that lead because Cummins stuck with Smith. So I think that will be something to keep an eye on and could be the difference. Two other differences. I think Nathan Lyon is a much better spinner than Keshav Maharaj, the South African spinner. Lyon approaching 300 wickets, coming off a career best year. I think he will be more of a handful. Although Maharaj did do pretty well last year in Test cricket, I just he just isn't as good as Nathan Lyon. So. I'm, not, I'm not sure if I agree with that. I, I think Nathan Lyon's in the form of his career, uh, and I think he may well be a decisive factor in the series. But I think Maharaj is a very good bowler. If I, if I had to pick between them, if I could choose either one, I am not actually sure which one I'd pick. And that's not to have denigrate Nathan Lyon at all, because I think Maharaj is... is well, is so you're going to go with someone who's taken 50 wickets over someone that's taken almost 300. I think <laughs> that another way of looking at it would be saying that Kishav Maharaj's average in um, first-class cricket would be vastly better than Nathan Lyon's, um, which is not... You know, not the be all and end all, but nor is overall wickets. Um, so Maharaj. <laughs> Stat battle. Stat battle on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Stat off. Maharaj averages 26.8 in first class cricket. Nathan Lyon would be probably 10 more than that. I'm not saying that's a particularly valid stat, but I think it's every bit as valid as the number of wickets they've taken. I mean, he just hasn't played as many games. That's why he hasn't taken as many wickets. I guess as well, Australia doesn't have a great track record against yeah. spin. So. Uh, well, if Maharaj gets on a track. Well, you've got to remember that we have a lot of left-handers and Maharaj is a left-arm orthodox. So he's not taking the ball away from the left-handers. So you've got to keep kind of thinking about that. Uh, I mean, we struggled against spin in Sri Lanka on the straight ball. Wasn't The ball wasn't <laughs> turning. We were getting uh, yeah, getting caught LBWs. But That's true. I, I just think the bounce that Nathan Lyon is able to extract when sometimes a wicket isn't turning, that's where he's been decisive. And we talk about South African wickets and Australian wickets being very similar. And if there is that extra little bit of bounce, I think Nathan Lyon will be able to extract that out more than Maharaj. And I think we also have improved our batting against spin um, since the Sri Lankan tour as well. So um, I'm, 
I think it's 50-50 between the two of them for me. Anyway, so Lion over Maharaj. That's why I'm picking Australia, despite Paul. And finally... I'm going to have to cheer Maharaj on now. (laughs) And while going for a 4-0 Australian victory. (laughs) That's going to be difficult. (laughs) Um, Steve Smith, and he's my final reason. As good as AB de Villiers, Hashim Amla, Faf Duplessis, none of them are as good as Steve Smith. He did well on the last tour of South Africa, scored 100 um, made another good score there. So I think, you know, Smith, if he has a good series, then it's all over for South Africa and Australia will win 2-1. Good news for sports fans. There's going to be lots of coverage of this tour if you want to keep up with the cricket. Fox Sports are showing it live. It's going to be on SEN Radio now. So you thought you'd had enough of Jared Waitley on the ABC. Well, bad luck. He's back. Um, so you'll be able to listen to the cricket there. All right. So... We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with all the week in cricket headlines. I just want to sort of announce the plan for the tour. So at the end of every test match, I'm going to be talking to one of our reporters on the scene. It'll be Ben Horn or Pete Lawler to get a full update on the test and what's going on over there. And then I'm going to pair that uh, report with a feature interview for every podcast Excited to announce that next week's feature interview will be Elise Perry. Sat down with her and had a wide-ranging discussion for about half an hour. So that will be in next week's podcast after the first test report. All right, we'll be back in a minute with the cricket headlines. I'll be very, very happy with this Australia. Even if they bat in person, an excellent shot from Tim Bang. That could be an upper decker. Oh, you're beautiful. It's a biggie. You're listening to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp cricket podcast. I'm here with former Australian all-rounder Lisa Stalaker and Paul and Menas, who haven't played for Australia. Uh, <laughs> yet, yet. Yet, that's right. Uh, is there an over, like, 40s and not very good league? Because we qualify. <laughs> all right, now let's get into the cricket headlines by the Daily Telegraph. Since the last show, Australia won the T20 Tri-Series final and rocketed up, rocketed up to number two in the world, just behind Pakistan in the T20 rankings. New Zealand were restricted to nine for 150. The best bowler for Australia was Ashton Agar, who took three for 27 in a man-of-the-match performance. Australia chased down the runs. Darcy Short made 50 off 30 balls. The rain came, so they won on Duckworth-Lewis method, but it was a little bit of an anticlimax, the final, because of the rain. But I have to say, I was really pumped for that final. It sort of wet my appetite for the... T20 2020 World Cup. Yeah, it certainly gives us a bit of an insight. And T20 cricket with the Australian team is a rarity. We kind of look forward to maybe, you know, two or three matches a year. And that's Which normally it. we lose. Yeah, true. Uh, because we keep chopping and changing our side. And that's something that Ricky Ponting, when he came into the role, he said, well, how are you ever going to perform yeah. well if you don't have a constant group of players? So fingers crossed the Australian selectors have potentially found uh, who their T20 side might be and, it, it, you know, how successful they were. It kind of makes it an interesting discussion of where does Steve Smith fit in? Where does Mitchell Stark fit in? Where does Joss Hazelwood, Pat Cummins, where do these guys fit in who don't really play T20 cricket regularly? I think you answered some of the question there that if you're not playing T20 cricket, then it's hard to bring the skill set to the game. I mean, you'd need to bowl differently, you need to bat differently. What we don't see, though, is that 
a lot of our players play in the IPL every year. So Smith, who doesn't play for Australia, had a pretty good IPL last year and he's captaining the Royals this year. But the bowlers are different. I don't think any of our bowlers are playing in the IPL. Yeah, Mitch Stark Mitch Stark is. So I think Stark and Smith are the two you'd bring in to the T20 side. I'd always bring Smith in. But having looked at that side, that top eight, has there ever been a more um, dynamic power-hitting top eight in Australian history? I think... I can't think of anything even close to it. That just one through eight, they can all hit sixes. It was an incredibly exciting lineup. Now, Chris Lynn dived to save a ball and did his shoulder, his right shoulder. So he's been forced to miss the PSL. And his $2 million, or almost $2 million, contract for the IPL is in doubt. Why did he dive is the first question. But second question, should they think about something like pinch hitters? in T20 cricket where you could have like a 12-man squad, the 12th person is just a gun fielder, um, and you have someone that just bats, like in baseball. Who'd want to be the 12th gun fielder? (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure, but there'd be a few who'd want to be that. Well, that could be the squad member. Yeah. Look, I I think it's certainly been floated before where you have that kind of pinch hitter, and certainly Chris Lim would probably jump at the chance to to not field and just bat because – what he does out there in the middle with the willow in hand is pretty spectacular. And it's a shame that potentially we're going to miss out on it, uh, especially from an IPL perspective. So why did he die for it? Because he's competitive. He sees the ball. He wants to win. He wants to do well for the team. It's hard not to. It's instincts. It's what it's what you've trained for all your life. It was a rhetorical the... question. But, anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but just in case, Dennis, just you know, case. for the listeners out there. But I sympathise with him because, as, as you say, how could you not dive? They should make an announcement before the game. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Lynn could dive, but in the interests of his future career, he's not going to dive. Just- but it, it sort of raises a, a bigger thing that you can't really hide in T20 cricket. No, you can't. You know, we saw in the, the first couple of the games of the Tri-Series, Lynn was sort of a short third man. They were trying to hide him and he'd sort of hobble after the ball. I just think it's such an intense game now. You're either fit to play or you're not. The, the in-between is hard. He's so good though. And when I did the fielding analysis of the IPL last year, and Ben Stokes was the best fielder. He contributed an average of plus two per game. You, you don't actually, in terms of numbers impact as much as you might think in terms of the the actual fielding you know maybe it'd be one ball every second game that he'd have to let go that he'd otherwise um, stop if that's the case versus him and another batsman who can dive I'm always going to want him in the side all right the man of the tri-series or the player of the tri-series was Glenn Maxwell he shot to the number one t20 all-rounder in the world and the number two t20 batsman now a little bit of a question for both of you I'll start with you Paul who do you think is a better batsman, Mitch Marsh or Glenn Maxwell? Glenn Maxwell by a very significant margin. And so, therefore, do you think Maxwell should be our number six in the test side? I'd have Maxwell over uh, Mitchell Marsh for sure. I mean, Mitchell Marsh did really well at the end of the Ashes, so you couldn't quibble with his position in the side at the moment. But if I was picking a side for my life, I'd prefer Maxwell in there rather than him. What about you, Lise? I think Maxwell has a skill set that, is exciting and dynamic and something that we certainly wouldn't expect to see often in the test arena. And he's been willing to to kind of do his switch hits, reverse sweeps, you name it, in the test arena. Mitch Marsh, credit to him, I think 
the fact that he was injured and he actually had an opportunity to, to work hard on his batting meant that he had such a good season for Western Australia that when he came back into the test arena, he knew how to build his innings. He knew how to, to get through the difficult parts and we saw that at the back end of the Ashes. I think at the moment Mitch Marsh should hold down the number six position but there is always an element of I love an X factor in that position and I think Glenn Maxwell has that ability. Is he consistent enough at the moment? That's the real question and, and maybe he's not. But moving forward, you'd like to find a position for both of them, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. I just sort of sometimes I think Mitch Marsh is a little bit of a flat track bully that he's you know brought up in Western Australia. Uh, he made his century at the Wacker when he got brought back into the Ashes, made another century at SCG on a flat deck. So I don't know how he's going to go when the ball's moving around, whereas I think Maxwell can prosper in any conditions. He just sort of has the same counter-attacking game. It'd be good coming under the influence of Ponting at Delhi Daredevils as well, I think. All right, now let's move the next bit of news. And New South Wales won their 19th Women's National Cricket League title, just extending New South Wales' dominance in women's cricket. The Thunder won the first women's big bash. The Sixers won the next two. Now New South Wales have won the 50-over comp. How many of those were you a part of, Lisa, of the 19, do you think? Uh, Quite a few. Yeah. Quite a few. 14, 15. And were you around the day that New South Wales lost the final to South Australia? I was commentating. Because I can imagine it would have been a pretty weird feeling in the New South Wales dressing room when they lost, what, one of the last 20 finals. Yeah. I mean, I was part of uh, the New South Wales side when we lost twice to Victoria and Belinda Clark had gone down to Victoria and we won that first year and then they won it back. But... um, yeah, it, it, it is a weird feeling because there is always You've an been expe- playing a long time. Yeah, there's always an expectation that New South Wales are in the final and they win it. So, um, yeah, that would have been a, a weird feeling for the players. It was weird commentating it as well. But great performance this time for New South Wales. They made six for 302. Alyssa Healy, 122 off 109 balls. Elise Perry, 96 off 96. She loves a, a 90, Elise. WA, 251 in reply. Sarah Ailey, three for 37. And Elise Perry, if 96 wasn't enough, she took two for 38. Alex Blackwell announced her retirement from international and New South Wales cricket. She'll just be playing for the Sydney Thunder now. She's Australia's most capped woman's player. Lisa, you played a lot with Alex. I guess how will she remembered by be remembered by her teammates? Oh, she'll be very she'll be sorely missed because her preparation and her dedication to how she trained, they'll certainly miss that. She led from the front by example, um, was one of the hardest trainers there, always lift the standard in the field. And and I think credit to Alex, you know, she came into the Australian side, I think, in 2003, and, and the game changed so much. And for her to keep adapting to that just showed that she was willing to, to cope with change and find ways to still be able to contribute to the side. So certainly uh, an end of an era with Alex Blackwell calling it a day. But also I think it's the, probably the right time in the sense that there are a lot of younger players who, who are now in their mid-20s that are ready to take over and it'll be exciting to see where they take the New South Wales side and also the Australian side. And great for her that she can stay with the game and play for the Thunder in the Women's Big Bash. So it's wean herself off cricket. She played a lot with her twin, Kate 
Blackwell. Did you have trouble telling them apart in the dressing room, Lisa? No, I didn't. Uh, I I knew Alex and Kate from a from a young age. Um, kind of managed a, a junior New South Wales side. So, and and they went to Barker College where I went to, and uh, we used to hang out on weekends regularly. And uh, no, I I used to be able to tell the difference, even when they got their haircuts exactly the same. And we kept <laughs> saying, "Please, can you start making jokes and fool a few of your teachers or your teammates, or, or you know, or the coaching staff." But they never did that. They were too good. All right. The next update for the week is the Sheffield Shield. There's been some big movement there. Victoria thrashed Western Australia by 255 runs to go top of the Shield ladder. Now, I want to make it clear that the Sheffield Shield person that does the fixtures didn't take this podcast into account because there is still one shield match going that started a day later than the rest so i can't give you the the proper shield ladder Uh, it's pretty selfish of them not to think about the podcast but at the moment victoria at the top when queensland finished their game against south australia they will probably go back into the top position but a huge, you know, Victoria won the bottom. Now they've rocketed to the top. They're going for their fourth Sheffield Shield in a row. Standout performers Travis Dean made 111. Chris Tremaine took 10 for the match. And I heard Sean Graff speaking about him that he was picked for Australia's white ball team, which which is bad because he's not a white ball bowler. He's a, a red ball bowler that bowls out swing. So that's a pretty handy package. Tall, quick bowler bowling out swingers. So Chris Tremaine is one to watch. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he didn't do him much favours, as you said, get, getting him picked for that disastrous 5-0, uh, disastrous 5-0 series loss to South Africa um, a year or two ago, for sure. Apparently he likes the Duke ball, Tremaine. And finally, uh, Aaron Finch, 151 not out of 122 balls. He's showing the ability to score runs against the red ball. He's scoring runs against everything at the moment. I've never considered him as a test player. Are um, we going to hear your World Cup semi-final story again? No, no, we're not going to hear that. <laughs> Regular <laughs> listeners will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, his recent record in, in, in red ball cricket is actually quite good. He doesn't get to play enough. But in the last um, five years, he averages in the mid-40s in red ball cricket. He's someone I don't think is really considered for the test team. But in his current form, you could do worse than him. Yeah, we probably it's not quite in our top best six batsmen, is he, for the test side. Um, New South Wales and Tasmania played out a rain-marred draw at the SCG, but there was a couple of good stories. Moses Enriquez scored 131 not out in New South Wales' first innings. And look, he's had a tough season. He took a break from the game. He gave up the New South Wales captaincy, so it's good to see him scoring runs. And in reply, Tasmania got first innings points. Bo Webster made 136 of 354 balls. That would have been a long innings. Jake Doran, 97. And Matthew Wade, 108 not out. And he's been in really good form since uh, the break, Big Bash break. So Matthew Wade scoring runs. And Tom Rogers a... uh, took four for 88 in that mm. game as well. And a very flat wicket, presumably. He's got quite a nice little first-class career that he's put together now. He's only played seven games, but taken 29 wickets, an average of 16. Too early to read too much into that, but that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, very impressive. And as I said, South Australia and Queensland are still playing showing little consideration for this podcast. But Matt Renshaw did score another century, 112 off 148. My trip to South Africa is looking good. <laughs> good that he scored uh, much more quickly. Early in the summer, he was getting bogged down. So it sounds like he seems like he might have made a conscious decision to, to be a bit more positive. I think that's the right way to go. 
in good form. So as the ladder stands at the moment, Victoria in top on 32.11 points and the bottom place, South Australia, on 26 points. This is going to be a ding-dong finish. Do you watch much of the Shield, Lisa? I don't, to be honest. There's so many other games of cricket that are going on around the world that I try and keep up. But certainly I try and keep up to date with the scores. And the good thing is, and and the reason why Australian cricket has always been in a good situation is because our domestic competitions are strong. And I'd like to see our Shield cricket almost come back to the fore after the Big Bash. These are all the stars we were talking about that we saw in different coloured uniforms. I'd love to see them on my TV screen playing Shield Cricket. I think I'd love to see in the next media rights deal that Shield Cricket almost gets another kind of reboost. I agree. I, I do put the stream on when, especially now that the cricket season sort of, the international stuff's not on TV and I have these long, lonely days with no cricket. I sort of, <laughs> I'll remember that, oh, the Shield's on and I'll, I'll put a stream on. But I've got a set up here where you know, Apple TV, whatever, it's not hard for me to, to watch it. But that's a barrier that does stop a lot of people from watching it. So like you, I'd love a cricket channel, just 24 hours, strain cricket, nonstop. Well, for a while there. And I you'd th- be commentating 24 hours the way you're going. <laughs> Woo! I think uh, Channel 9 were paid by Cricket Australia to show the Matador Cup for a couple of years on GEM. It's a good point. They could do that in a TV deal. They could say, hey, we'll, we'll give you a slight discount if you actually show um, the Sheffield Shield on, on, a, on a 24-hour cricket channel. It would be good. I agree. All right, we're going to take our final break. Before we do that, I rem- want to remind you all that if you haven't already, subscribe to Cricket Unfiltered, rate and review the podcast, and tell all your cricket-loving friends about the show this will be the place to keep up with the South African tour. So, Elise Perry on 198. Driven down. She's taking off. And she's done it. She's done it for the second time. Is she going to celebrate the first time just as much as the first time? No. She just puts the bat up. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp cricket podcast. That was Elise Perry bringing up her double century for the second time in the Women's Ashes Day-Night Test. And our very own Lisa Stalaker was commentating. Uh, Did you get a bit nervous, Lisa, when Elise celebrated the first time? And then we think, oh, no, this could be a bad story. No, I wish you had put up that that commentary because it was quite funny because um, not only did she kind of go with what the crowd was doing, as commentators, we did the same thing. <laughs> and then everyone kind of realised, I think I go, Elise Perry, I can't believe it. Put your helmet back on. you still got to score runs. So, yeah. It, it, it's, I might put it in now. Yeah. <laughs> it's ex- <laughs> it's exciting Um the fact that such a unique kind of situation had never scored 100 for her country, did so in the Test match 100 and then got the opportunity to bring up her double. Now, Lise, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you've been everywhere all summer. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your experiences. You made your your men's Big Bash commentary debut when Boof pulled out with an injury. Thanks, Boof. How did you enjoy uh, the call-up? Yeah, it was great. Um, I, I was I was hoping that there might have been an opportunity this summer, and and obviously with a, a few extra matches, I was hoping that that might be the case. And unfortunately, didn't really pan out. But then obviously Darren Lehman pulled out and and kind of got the nod. And and to kind of work with Adam Gilchrist and uh, Baz McCullum, it it was easy. It was really comfortable, and I was I felt like a 
it was Christmas all again because I was sitting next to two amazing cricketers and I was just chewing their ear off about... A bit like today. Yeah, a bit like what what would they be doing <laughs> in the situation and um, felt very comfortable. I'll, I'll be honest, I was nervous uh, and I had to remind myself that I'd actually... Where do those nerves come from? Is it the fact that you know that it's a million people watching or is it... What is it? Yeah, it, it's that and it, it's also that uh, Australia seems to be almost the last terrain that we've been able to kind of break into uh people are quite comfortable mel jones and myself commentating on women's cricket where you that where you they're used to us uh, because of the women's big bash and this year it was almost a breakthrough year where we where i think mel jones and i were more accepted as we can talk about cricket the nerves came about the fact that it was the first time i was doing it in australia and obviously more family and friends would be watching but I reminded myself I'd been doing the IPL for the last three years and more than um, probably 20 million people watch the IPL and I commentate there regularly. So why am I worried about one million mm, and Australians? And you've been doing the cricket exactly. show at lunch during the Ashes. So you were all over the cricket. How is your commentary philosophy changing as you get more experience? Because we've spoken about this in past podcasts. How is it evolving? I think uh, certainly I feel a lot more comfortable in front of the mic uh, and you might be seeing more of my personality coming out uh, instead of this is how I should sound or this is how I should react about this situation. It's a bit more natural and I think if I'm enjoying the game of cricket, I think naturally it just comes out, the the commentary. Um, I think I've started to realise what I can bring to the coverage and it's a bit of light humour, a bit of jokes, but also tactically because that was one thing I loved about the game is how to get into players' minds or can you read the situation well. So I'm trying to bring that into my commentary as well. So I think I'm starting to find what my style is. Now I just need to keep perfecting it. And do you get much direction from Channel 10 management do they did i know they have test groups and all that did you get much feedback about commentary from them or is it yeah dave barham who's the head of sport there has been excellent uh when they got women's big bash in originally uh he was always in our ear so he was in the van or if he was watching the game he'd send us a text message and give us feedback straight away and whilst we were in the blow by blow which i preferred compared to get, getting it after a game because it's like, remember you did this? And it's like, sorry, when did I do that? <laughs> but uh, when it initially happens... Doesn't that put you off your game, though, if you're commentating you to get a message? No. Shut up! No, oh. <laughs> no, no, that has happened in the IPL and the, and the director wasn't speaking to me. He was speaking to someone else, but I stopped talking. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, no, I prefer the feedback. I've noticed in this industry that you don't get a lot of feedback and I don't know why, but as a past athlete who wants to always improve, I've taken that same mentality mindset into my commentary so I've had to kind of go searching for the feedback and in the end I tape things and watch it and rely on family and friends to let me know how I'm going and there was a bit of a backlash when Channel 9 announced their commentary team for the men's ashes that there were no females and I sort of thought that the reaction to that um, announcement showed a significant shift in the way the Australian public thinks now because there was a very vocal element that wants a variety of voices. In cricket commentary, you want different perspectives. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think um, Australia has finally caught up 
to the rest of the world. I know we're a fair distance away from everyone else, but there is now an appetite for for female voices to be in the commentary box and and an understanding that it is going to be different and it's going to be it's going to sound different. But I think what Channel Ten have done with the Big Bash has really enabled everyone to change their mindset and now people are craving it generally and hopefully next year when the new tv deal kicks in uh, there are females commentating the test matches and at the end of the big bash season obviously the deal with channel 10 has now come to an end was there any sort of sadness around the group what the, you know obviously there's a lot of uncertainty how was that among the commentators and the production team yeah actually after the final um the production team and all the commentators got together and Dave Barham actually did a long speech and, and kind of thanked a lot of people that helped create what the Big Bash is and what we know and love about it. It was it was time, I guess, for him to kind of reflect on what the last five years have been and what they've been able to achieve. But there's there's still a lot of excitement out there and there's hopes that Channel 10 will continue with the Big Bash. Um, there are hopes that it might even get more cricket. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty having worked across all of the channels and, and all of the different industries, whether it be radio or TV and even print. Everyone's a little digital, bit... Yeah, digital. Yeah, digital, yeah. said. Everyone doesn't know what's going to happen. So there is, a, uh, there is that uncertainty, but also an excitement of what does this new era bring? I think we all thought international cricket should always be on Channel 9. We were brought up with it. We were used to those voices, but things have changed. So it could go anywhere, and, mm. and that's exciting, I think, for the game. All right. Well, to end this show, I thought I would ask you both for your highlights of the summer, but more a moment that stands out for you, um, something that stands out. And I'll give you mine to, to kick things off. I'll get off the mark here that, you know, a moment that took me by surprise. And a lot of journalists talk about this, that you stop supporting teams and you start supporting stories and players. And one of those players that I'm really like to support is Usman Khawaja. And it's because I read his story that he did on the player's voice about his upbringing. And he's a very honest amicable guy who doesn't pull any punches he answers all the questions he seems so relaxed and comfortable with his place in Australian cricket and then he went into the fifth test at the SCG having had an okay actions few people were questioning his position in the side he'd been dropped in the offseason a couple of times uh, on spinning wickets so he sort of he was in an in-between phase. He hadn't really scored that big score that he needed. And he comes to the SCG. He makes a brilliant 100. I think his mother was in the stand in a pink hijab and he, he signaled to her. And I got a bit emotional in the stands just seeing a, a guy that I want to see do well, do well like that. It was a moving moment and a great moment for him and a great moment in the summer. So, Lisa, what was your highlight of the summer? I've got two. I think uh, Steve Smith is his hundred up at the Gabba and the emotion that he showed after that, where he kind of beat his chest and to the dressing room. I think that set the tone for the Ashes series and kind of set him as as what he's trying to do as a leader. Like he's a young guy captaining all his all of his mates. Really, like if we think about it, he's played that much cricket with them at junior levels. Um, but he's stamping his authority, and I thought that was a quite an important moment. And I can't Great imagery of his sort of fierce sort of yell almost to the the team as he brought up his hundred. Yeah, and, and the other one is uh, Elise Perry double hundred. I think 
to encapsulate the whole women's day-night test match at the North Sydney Oval, I think the fact that you had such a big crowd there was such a great atmosphere and it was great to see them out there and get the support that they did. I think that was a turning moment in women's cricket. It must have been funny for you. Obviously, you probably saw Elise Perry when she made a debut for Australia when she was 16 and a very young girl and now uh, matured into this fantastic world-beating cricketer. Yeah, the... I've known Elise and, and seen her on the field since she was about 11 years of age. So um, she was a brat then and she still is a brat. But uh, she has turned into a wonderful cricketer. And, uh, you know, it's a shame that the Australian women's side don't get an opportunity to play more test cricket because she is the ultimate test player. She would do. She would break all records in the test arena. And, you know, while she's adapted her game for the one-day format and, and is doing so for the T20 format, it's a shame that the Australian public don't get to see the best of Elise Perry. And Paul, what was your highlight of the summer? Oh, I think... The, or your moment? <clears throat> well, it's hard to pick an individual, individual moment out of this, but Steve Smith's whole summer um, and feeling as though uh, I'm in the presence of true greatness. You know, I love reading about Bradman and the idea that during this summer... Although, albeit it was passing Adam Voges. But- In a side note to your love of Bradman, I did get a message from you this summer to take photos from Bradman's Farewell to Cricket book and send you the photos. Yeah, um, I wanted to read something. Mine's in, in storage somewhere. but uh- <laughs> <laughs> We're the winners, aren't we, Menace? Um- <laughs> but um, the fact that, St- that Steve Smith eclipsed Adam Voges and ga- came into second position in the all-time test averages and he's now averaging about 63 who knows where he'll be at the end of his career uh, there have been players who've averaged on that threshold and you know they tend to drop away hopefully he doesn't and if he doesn't then maybe we've seen a summer that will go down as um, you know one of the better summers of a player who may get regarded as the second best batsman of all time I just love his competitiveness as well that moment when the Marsh brothers were embracing <laughs> mid-pitch at the SCG um, when Mitch had brought up his was it Mitch no Sean had brought up his Mitch, Mitch. Mitch had no, brought Mitch, up, yeah. Mitch had brought up his hundred and there was a millisecond where Everyone thought, oh, they're going to get run out. Then the, the rest of the crowd, a millisecond later, realised, no, it's going to be fine. And everyone just calmed down. But such was the competitive of, competitiveness of Steve Smith that his reaction in the dressing room was one of abject fury. Like, what are you doing, you more? Like, there's two or three seconds of just pure rage where everyone else had realised it was going to be fine. That's the kind of guy you want leading your country, that that level of competitiveness is superb to see. I agree. Again, the other moment that sticks out for me, and I think will get replayed, hundreds of times is the the Lachlan Weatherall catch in the Big Bash the no that was superb I mean that one thing that T20 does bring is that sort of moment of excitement like of just athleticism and two players just being at the top of their game I mean you just wouldn't see a better catch on the fence from Lachlan and then to throw it and Weatherall take another good catch 30 metres away that'll be replayed for years in Steve Waugh's last season, he got caught like that with, I think it was Shane Watson on the boundary in a one-dayer. And it was one of the first times that it had ever been seen. And it was almost like, have we broken the laws of physics here? And yet now, <laughs> that same thing happens every game. And it takes something like that one that you talked about to, to really impress everyone, such as the standard improved in such a short time. I agree. Well, we're coming to the end of the podcast this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Lisa, thanks for coming in. No worries. Uh, great to have you on. Hopefully we can catch up again sometime. When in between gigs sometime. <laughs> Sounds good. And Paul, thanks for coming in again. Thanks, Menace. Thanks, Lisa. So everyone, enjoy the South African series. We'll be back after the first test with a full wrap and the interview with Elise Perry. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back soon.